Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump and his lawyers speaking out on the third indictment. What to expect as Trump sets to make his first court appearance for these charges. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill and presidential candidates offered their reactions to Trump's indictment. And the responses vary within the GOP. What's actually in the four new charges against Trump? We'll explain how it breaks down legally and what the prosecutors are arguing. The Pittsburgh synagogue shooter is sentenced to death. All 12 jurors agreed on the first capital punishment sentence under the Biden administration. And drug and gun charges against the director of an anti-gun violence program. The city of New York was in partnership with the organization. The goal was to end shootings. Former President Trump is set to make his first court appearance tomorrow in the January 6th case. That's as he says he's never had so much support following his third indictment. Joining us now live is NTD's Iris Tao from outside of the courthouse. Iris, what should we expect to see tomorrow? Hey, good evening, Steph. You're right. So former President Trump, according to this 45-page indictment that was handed down yesterday, is facing four criminal charges over his alleged involvement in the January 6th incident. And on Thursday, he's expected to be arraigned here at the federal courthouse right behind me here in Washington, D.C. And what will happen is that he will have the charges against him read to him by a judge, and then he's expected to plead not guilty. And today, in preparation for the proceeding tomorrow, the Secret Service says is working with Capitol Police as well as local authorities trying to ensure Trump's safety during tomorrow's proceeding. And of course, we all know that today a big incident happened just a few blocks away from here. A Senate building was evacuated after a bogus 911 call about a potential active shooter there. And of course, nothing happened today, but we do expect to see a massive security presence tomorrow. Definitely a lot to watch for tomorrow. So, Iris, how's Trump responding ahead of his arraignment? What are his lawyers saying? So Trump today again lashed out at this latest indictment. He posted to social media saying, quote, this unprecedented indictment has awoken the world to the corruption, scandal and failure that, is, that has taken place in the United States for the past three years. And he added that he has, quote, never had so much support on anything before after yesterday's indictment. And that's as Trump's legal team also laid out their part of their defense strategy today, which is focused on the First Amendment watch. And our defense is going to be focusing on the fact that what we have now is an administration that has criminalized the free speech and advocacy of a prior administration during the time that there is a political election going on. That's unprecedented. And on the prosecution side, the judge in charge of this case, which is Tanya Chukin, she's known for her, her harsh punishing, harsh sentencing of January 6th defendants. And of course, on when it comes to the jury, Trump's lawyers today suggested that they might want to move the trial out of D.C. because the jury here might not be as friendly to Trump. Steph. All right. Thanks so much for that update, Iris. Great to hear. And lawmakers and presidential candidates are reacting to the latest indictment against former President Trump. What are they saying about the charges and what are they promising to do? 
Reactions poured in after a grand jury in D.C. indicted former President Trump on four felony charges in relation to the 2020 elections. In a joint statement, Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries said, quote, This indictment is the most serious and most consequential thus far and will stand as a stark reminder to generations of Americans that no one, including a president of the United States, is above the law. The legal process must continue to move forward without any outside interference. In a post on Twitter, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy referenced the House investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings. He wrote, quote, everyone in America could see what was going to come next. DOJ's attempt to distract from the news and attack the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, President Trump. Republican presidential candidates offered a more varied response to the indictment. Former Vice President Mike Pence said in a statement, quote, Today's indictment serves as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. I did my duty that day. And as I stand for the Republican nomination for president, I want them to know, whatever it means to me, I'll always stand on the Constitution of the United States of America. Look, our country is more important than any one man. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy condemned the indictment as un-American and said he would pardon Trump if elected. It would be easier for me if Donald Trump were eliminated from competition. That's not how I want to win. This is not about politics to me. This is about first principles. We do not want to become a country where the party in power is able to use banana republic-like tactics to eliminate its political opponents. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis didn't mention Trump or the specifics of the charges in his statement, but commented that it's unfair to have to stand trial before a jury in Washington, D.C. He promised to, quote, end the weaponization of government, replace the FBI director, and ensure a single standard of justice for all Americans. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. As mentioned earlier, Trump faces arraignment in his third indictment tomorrow. He's been charged with attempting to overturn the 2020 election. So NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards is here to break down the charges. With two other indictments waiting in the wings and charges looming in Georgia, former President Trump is prepared to face a third indictment in a Washington courtroom on Thursday. Trump was indicted Tuesday on four counts, including conspiring to defraud the U.S., obstructing an official proceeding, and conspiring to deprive voters of their right to fair elections. The charges announced by special counsel Jack Smith stem from a years-long investigation into allegations that the former president attempted to overturn the 2020 election. Now, in a 45-page indictment, federal prosecutors accused Trump and a list of six unnamed co-conspirators of a multi-state conspiracy, culminating from false claims of widespread election fraud. It states that Trump knowingly spread lies in an effort to maintain power, and that he knew his claims were false, yet continued to proclaim that he was the rightful winner. The conspiracy charges hinge on allegations that Trump and his allies pressured state and federal officials to throw out the election results, which ultimately resulted in the breach of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The indictment states that one way the co-conspirators attempted to obstruct the electoral proceedings was by organizing fraudulent slates of electors and that the so-called fraudulent electors attempted to mimic procedures that legitimate electors were supposed to follow. 
A former state prosecutor told me in a previous interview that it's not illegal to submit a second slate of electors to Congress. That's something that's happened throughout the history of the, of the nation, is that there's been competing slates of electors that have been sent to Congress, and it's Congress that decides uh, whether or not which uh, slate that they're going to accept. This dates back to 18, uh, 1870 or so. Three state and local prosecutors are similarly investigating allegations of so-called fake electors. Last month, Michigan's attorney general filed felony charges against 16 fake electors accused of aiding Trump in attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. Georgia's Fulton County prosecutor Fannie Willis recently expanded her investigation to include fake electors. And Arizona's attorney general also began an investigation into fake electors last month. Earlier this year, the Manhattan prosecutor indicted Trump, alleging that he falsified business records to hide hush money payments to an adult film actress. The actress had claimed she had an affair with Trump years ago. In June, Smith's office charged Trump with illegally retaining classified documents after leaving the White House and obstructing efforts to retrieve them. And in Georgia, Willis has been investigating whether Trump and others illegally interfered with that state's election. Willis, an elected Democrat, is expected to bring charges within the next three weeks. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And here to offer his analysis of the latest indictment is former federal prosecutor and Republican candidate for the Attorney General of Missouri, Will Scharf, whom I spoke with earlier today. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Trump's being accused of four counts in his latest indictment. You allege that there are serious legal infirmities within each of these counts. I'd like to start with the conspiracy to defraud the United States. How could Trump's intentions be legally proven and how could he disprove it? What's your take on this? Sure. So th there are three conspiracy counts in this indictment. With respect to all three, the government is going to have to prove uh, really tricky uh, details about not just President Trump's state of mind, uh, but also his alleged co-conspirators' states of mind. So if Trump and his alleged co-conspirators did not, uh, if they believed the theories that they were promoting, if they believed that the election had in fact been stolen, uh, then there is no ground for conviction here. Uh, that's the trickiest part of this case to me, is that it really comes down to what was inside President Trump's mind. Uh, and I just don't think they have the facts to prove uh, that his mental state was criminally culpable. Right. And there's an allegation within these conspiracies to deprive the people of the right to have their votes counted. Where do you see the holes in that argument? So that count in particular, uh, it's been primarily used historically uh, in cases where uh, people have filed false votes, uh, where there have been conspiracies among election officials uh, to, to rig elections, essentially. Uh, here, again, the, the government will have to show that President Trump and his legal team uh, were advancing theories that they knew to be false, uh, were, were providing facts that they knew to be false uh, to state officials, and that they had a criminal intent, that their goal here uh, was actually depriving people of their right to vote. That's just an incredibly high bar to meet. And you have to figure that in front of any fair judge and jury, uh, the special counsel is certainly going to have an uphill battle 
uh, meeting that that th those requirements to prove their case. And Trump's legal team is calling the push for a speedy trial within 90 days absurd. And you've also said that the timing seems suspect. What concerns you about it? Yeah, so we saw the same thing with the documents case out of Mar-a-Lago that was also brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, he's repeatedly stood up in front of the American people and said that these cases are ready for trial. These cases need to go to trial now. Uh, in this case, this relates to conduct that occurred uh, over two years ago, two and a half years ago. President Trump was already impeached and then acquitted uh, for the, the conduct that's at issue here. To my way of thinking, there's no reason why this case had to be brought now as opposed to a year and a half ago or as opposed to two years in the future. There's no reason why this case has to proceed during a presidential election. And the fact that they've brought it when they have uh, really speaks to a, a, certainly an appearance of impropriety and an appearance of political timing, uh, if not actual impropriety and actual political considerations having gone into the, the decision to bring this indictment now. Considering your assessment of the charges, how do you see this playing out in the courts? You know, I am, I am confident that if this case were to reach the United States Supreme Court, that the United States Supreme Court would dismiss uh, some or all of the charges brought in this indictment, just based on the, the legal infirmities, based on the real legal issues uh, with Jack Smith's theory of this prosecution. The question is, what's the path? And unfortunately, the pathway seems to be through a D.C. Circuit Court judge who was an Obama appointee, who's been uh, very unfair to many January 6th defendants, uh, and potentially through a D.C. jury. Washington, D.C. is probably the most left-wing jurisdiction in the United States. It's very tough to see how President Trump gets a fair trial. So even though the end result uh, may be fair and may be just, I think the path to get there may do terrible damage to our democracy and to the rule of law. Now, you mentioned some of the other cases against Trump right now. How does this third indictment differ from the other two, in your opinion? Well, for one thing, this indictment relates to acts that the president uh, committed while he was in office uh, and largely acts that he's already been impeached and acquitted for uh, by the House of Representatives and by the United States Senate. That's a key differentiator here, that unlike the documents case, which relates to President Trump's conduct after he he left office, uh, this gets into core issues of separation of powers, uh, of presidential privilege, of presidential immunity. Uh, I think that, uh, perhaps more than anything else, uh, raises real questions as to whether this case should have been brought at all. All right. Thank you so much, Will Sharf. Great to hear your thoughts. Always great to join you. And next, a federal grand jury today sentenced the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter to death. Robert Bowers killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. It's the first federal death penalty handed down under the Biden administration. According to testimony, Bowers yelled at the scene, quote, all these Jews need to die. In June, jurors found the 50-year-old guilty of all 63 charges, including federal hate crime charges. Today, the federal jury voted unanimously to recommend that Bowers be put to death. In federal capital punishment cases, all 12 jurors have to agree to a death sentence. 
In the sentencing phase, prosecutors argued that Bowers carefully planned the attack and deliberately targeted elderly worshippers. He has also expressed no regret. Defense attorneys argued that Bowers suffers from major mental illness. Most of the victim's families said that he deserved to be put to death for his crimes. The DOJ under Biden has paused all death penalties, so it's unclear when the sentencing will be carried out. The director of an anti-gun violence program is being hit with gun and drug charges. His organization was in partnership with the city of New York to end shootings. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. The head of Bronx Rises Against Gun Violence, or BRAC, is being accused of supplying drugs to dealers in upstate New York. Police reportedly raided his home last week when they found drugs, over $160,000 in cash and two illegal firearms. The individual in question is 48-year-old Michael Rodriguez. His arrest comes after a two-year investigation, after which officials reportedly seized over 1.5 kilograms of crack cocaine. The Bronx District Attorney commented, saying the charges are shocking and disturbing, especially since he has attended anti-violence events and peace marches, portraying himself as someone who cares about stopping violence in our community. To learn more about this case, I spoke with Joe Imperatrice, who is the founder of Blue Lives Matter NYC and a sergeant with the NYPD. What do you make of this story? What do you make of those charges? I mean, were you shocked when you first heard about this? Well, this is nothing new. This is just stuff that doesn't make the media. It happens fairly often. The majority of these violence interrupters and people that are in charge of these uh, so-called uh, anti-violence uh, groups tend to be people that are known to the streets, known to be criminals. So this is not shocking. Unfortunately, it's going to continue to happen. What's more, last year, the city of New York released this blueprint to end gun violence. The city listed Bronx Rises Against Gun Violence as a community partner. Mayor Eric Adams previously talked about relying on community organizations for safety instead of the police. Other mayors across the nation made similar statements during the defund the police movement. Should the city do a better job in terms of conducting background checks and see who they're working with? I don't think it has to do with background checks. I think it should be stricter policies. Uh, I think certain people should not be eligible for these programs. I think cities like New York and large cities need to work more closely with their police departments. At the end of the day, it's going to be police officers that drive down crime while working with community members that want to help the police with no incentives involved. A spokesperson for Bragg reportedly commented on the charges, saying, while we work to learn more, our primary focus remains on the communities we serve and our programs that are helping to keep them safe. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, Fitch Ratings Agency surprised markets late Tuesday by downgrading the U.S. credit rating. Is the U.S. still credible to investors? And firefighters continue to battle a massive blaze in the California desert. A strong storm helped, but the shifting winds could be dangerous for fire crews. That and more after the break. Ratings downgraded the U.S. credit rating on Tuesday from the highest AAA rating to AA+. Fitch says it sees a steady deterioration in standards of governance on fiscal and debt matters in the U.S. For further insights, NTD Business's Don Ma talks with an economic analyst. 
And now joining me is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at BankedRate.com. So Mark, maybe just help us put this into perspective. Just, just paint, paint a picture for us. Obviously, one of the three major rating agencies is raising a, a bit of a question here about uh, the U.S. fiscal position. And I think, if anything, the timing of this announcement from Fitch uh, seemed a bit odd because it's referencing everything from the January 6th insurrection and uprising on Capitol Hill, which is two years in the rearview mirror, uh, and even, you know, apparently alluding, if not just outright referencing, some things that happened in the previous administration. And while there may be some people who take issue with what Fitch has done, I don't really think that there is a lot here that really surprises anybody in the sense of raising questions about the sustainability of U.S. debt and deficits. And this is something that uh, two Federal Reserve chairs ago, Ben Bernanke, was talking about uh, over a decade ago uh, when we had a downgrade by S&P. Uh, and so um, to the degree that this could lead to more constructive conversations, more civil conversations about where the U.S. Uh, fiscal position ought to be, uh, that could be a good thing. Do we have a high degree of confidence that all those discussions can be civil and constructive? Well, I guess what we'll say about that is let's see what happens. So in your opinion, do you think this downgrade of U.S. credit rating from Fitch, do you think this is justified? Well, that's a decision for them to make. I mean, they're a rating agency, and and uh, and that's their job. Uh, but but I do think the timing is somewhat suspect. But I think at the same time, the long-term observations uh, aren't really necessarily uh, things that many people would take issue with. We're talking about the rising level of uh, debt to GDP that we have in this country that cannot continue to rise at this rate. All right, and I, I think we should address uh, if there's going to be a long-term impact to this downgrade. I think we should start off with what has been the reaction in the stock market? I would say other than, you know, a, a kind of garden variety sell-off as we speak, I would say there's been not much reaction at all. And I, and I think the reason for that is, first of all, it's not our first rodeo with respect to a downgrade. Uh, we did have a, a rather severe reaction when this happened at the hands of Standard & Poor's over a decade ago. Uh, but ultimately, everybody moved past that and, and the government went about continuing to fund its business and uh, and and moving on forward with debt and deficits as, as it did over those uh, many years to come. Um, and this just doesn't feel uh, nearly as momentous as that event. For among other things, there we don't really have a pending crisis here in the coming days and weeks with respect to a default. All right. If we do get a consensus between the major ratings agencies, w would there be uh, a bigger impact then, in your opinion? I think that would be a much more serious uh, situation. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, you know, this is sort of an experiment that is continuing to play itself out in real time. Uh, and uh, you can almost say, I don't want to say so far so good with avoiding, you know, the calamity that we were talking about a few months ago. But, you know, in the sense that Fitch just seems, seems to have, without being a spokesman for them, uh, to have come out with this decision with odd timing. Uh, you know, I'm sure the other ratings agencies are taking note of this and making their own assessments about where they want to be. But obviously, so far, there hasn't been an event per se, recently, that has triggered those kinds of decisions on the other two being Moody's and S&P. All right. Thank you so much for your insight today, Mark. Thank you, Don. 
New hires are struggling with basic skills because the pandemic lockdowns stunted their educational experiences. How are businesses dealing with the current workforce? NTD's Colin Fredrickson takes a look. New job hires are having a difficult time after years of learning from home. ACT CEO Janet Godwin says more high school graduates lack the fundamental skills needed for college and work. Students who were already doing poorly are now doing far worse. Companies have to teach new hires things like how to look at people when talking to them, how to make change at a cash register, how to dress appropriately, cell phone etiquette, even basic hygiene. Pass rates on assessment exams have all gone down. For nurses, soldiers, office workers, and engineers, the ones who make it through still have a hard time adapting. It's important for leaders of organizations, no matter what kind, if it's an educational institution, an employer, a house of worship, it's important that we have to work even harder to create spaces that are safe and supportive. Consultant Corinthia Barber has helped people transition from staying home all day to a work environment. She sees anxiety as a key theme among her clients. The world they see around them is different from what they got used to, both during and before the lockdowns. Communication is everything. Sometimes we avoid we avoid communicating, verbalizing our concerns. Psychologist Michelle Leno has also helped people readjust. She says it's important for workers to talk to their supervisors or colleagues about the challenges they're facing. Bringing these up may be difficult, but it may also be necessary. And if we do not talk about it, if we don't address it and we avoid it, it just kind of builds and builds and builds and adds to our anxiety. Experts suggest that businesses should stop hiring people based on skills because right now many prospects don't have the necessary skills. Businesses should instead hire based on applicants' motivation to learn. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. A heavy downpour helped firefighters battling a massive blaze in California and Nevada. But meteorologists warn that sudden and erratic wind shifts could endanger crews later on. According to the National Weather Service, the 15-minute downpour early Tuesday helped firefighting efforts at the Mojave National Preserve. But thunderstorms could pose problems if they pass over the area. The York Fire was partially contained by Tuesday morning after igniting last week and spreading into Nevada. The flames scorched tens of thousands of acres of desert scrub, juniper, and Joshua tree woodland. The Mojave National Preserve is a, is a, is a complex and uh, sometimes delicate ecosystem, and so we're implementing what are called mist tactics, which is minimal impact suppression tactics. Now, this is a full suppression fire. We are absolutely going after this fire on all fronts, but we use, we use these mist tactics so we, don't, we cut just enough line to be able to control the fire and we don't get too crazy with it. Uh, there's no, we're not using bulldozers or any other kind of mechanized equipment. And so we're being very careful of what we refer to as being light on the land. Now the largest wildfire of the season in California, the blaze was mapped at over 82,000 acres on Wednesday morning with 30% containment. We're, we're one team, one fight. So uh, we've got resources from California, we've got resources from Nevada, from the Park Service, from BLM, uh, from a variety of local government agencies as well. And you mentioned CAL FIRE, uh, they're with us here as well. People said the fire started on private property, but the cause is unknown. The investigation is ongoing. Coming up, the toughest punisher. That's what some are calling the judge who will preside over Trump's capital breach case. We take a look at her, as well as possible alleged co-conspirators in the January 6th indictment.
and the U.S. is one of the world's top destinations for child sex traffickers. A researcher offers her insights on factors that are making the situation worse and on policies that could help end it when we come back. Continuing with the indictment of the former president, a judge known for handing out tough sentences to January 6 defendants has been assigned to the case. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on District Judge Tanya Chutkin. Judge Tanya Chutkin has doled out stricter sentences than the Justice Department called for in seven January 6 cases. She honored its requests in four others and sent all 11 capital breach defendants who came before her behind bars. In four cases in which prosecutors weren't even seeking jail time, Chutkin handed out sentences ranging from 14 days to 45 days. The Associated Press called Chutkin the toughest punisher, saying she has consistently taken the hardest line against January 6th defendants of any judge serving on Washington's federal trial court. In comparison, 20 judges who have sentenced capital breach defendants have handed out lighter sentences than prosecutors were seeking in about 75% of cases. No other judge apart from Chutkin has exceeded prosecutors' recommended punishment in most of the cases assigned to them. Chutkin has repeatedly spoken out in very strong terms against the events of January 6th. The Jamaica native has served as a federal judge since she was appointed by former President Barack Obama in 2014. After graduating from University of Pennsylvania Law School, Chutkin spent more than a decade working as a public defender in Washington, D.C. At a sentencing hearing in October 2021, she said those who participated in the January 6th breach soiled and defaced the halls of the Capitol and showed their contempt for the rule of law. At the same hearing, she rejected comparisons between January 6th and the 2020 BLM protests, saying to compare the actions of people around the country protesting mostly peacefully for civil rights to a violent mob seeking to overthrow the lawfully elected government is a false equivalency and downplays the very real danger that the crowd on January 6th posed to our democracy. At least 14,000 people were arrested in the BLM protests and more than 19 people died in relation to the unrest. Arson, vandalism and looting caused approximately $1 to $2 billion in damages. Before sentencing two friends who came to the Capitol, Chutkin said, This wasn't Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, calling their actions an assault on the American people. She added, This was a violent attempted overthrow of the government and it almost succeeded. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now our Daniel Monahan has more on Trump's alleged possible co-conspirators. The six alleged co-conspirators are not named in the indictment and have not been charged by special counsel Jack Smith, but their detailed descriptions hint at their identity. Possible alleged co-conspirator number one is Rudy Giuliani. The former New York City mayor and Trump's former personal attorney played a prominent role in sharing theories of widespread fraud in the 2020 election and spoke at an event outside the White House on January 6, 2021. Number two, attorney John Eastman, who represented Trump in a lawsuit to overturn voting results in four states. Eastman wrote a series of legal memos which claimed that former Vice President Mike Pence 
could reject electors from certain states to deny Democrat Joe Biden a majority of the electoral college vote. Number three, attorney Sidney Powell, part of a legal team that filed unsuccessful lawsuits seeking to overturn election results. She has been sued for defamation by the voting companies over claims she made about them rigging the 2020 election against Trump. Tuesday's indictment described someone with similar characteristics claiming that Trump privately told others that the election fraud claims by this alleged co-conspirator sounded crazy, but that he still embraced and publicly amplified the allegations. Possible alleged co-conspirator number four, former high-ranking Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. Clark allegedly tried to convince Trump to oust acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen so that he could take over the department. The alleged plan was then to pursue Trump's claims by opening an investigation into voter fraud in Georgia and other swing states. Number five, attorney Kenneth Chesabro, who allegedly helped devise a plan to submit fake slates of electors for Trump to obstruct Congress's certification of the election results. Possible alleged co-conspirator number six is currently not clear based on the information in the indictment. The person is described as a political consultant. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD will have live coverage of Trump's court appearance tomorrow from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in. And next, fighting child trafficking in Southern California. Advocates are calling on people to help end crimes that harm society's most vulnerable. NTD's Christina Corona has more. Advocates for Ending Child Trafficking held an event on Sunday called Save the Children Caravan to inform people that concerned citizens are aware of and against trafficking, slavery, and anything harming children. Cars and motorcycles will drive together from point A to point B, honking at major intersections and drawing attention to posters and messages displayed throughout the caravan. When we drive by, we bring awareness to our community that we are actively involved and we don't like the situation and hopefully encouraging other people to also do research and get involved themselves. Anderson tells us what she believes is the dominant reason for trafficking in the United States, especially in California. Uh, immigration, definitely. Um, the economy, it's, it's a booming industry, so obviously people who want to make money illegally or very quickly are aware that it's a possibility for them. So it, it's an open market for them to be making money on human beings and children. Sexual trafficking has been reported in all 50 states in the United States, so you can't even say it's just anybody's one problem. California is an easy victim because we have tourism. We spoke with Myra Hande, who shares what inspired her to get involved with Save the Children Caravan and to help bring awareness to others. I always knew about child sex trafficking, but I always felt that the topic was discouraged around my circles. So now that I went to go see The Sound of Freedom, it, it, it inspired a spark in my heart to go ahead and move towards advocating towards ending child sex trafficking. Myra shares that in America alone, child sex trafficking is a $3 billion industry. And then we have children who are being sexually abused five to ten times a day. And they're from the ages of five, ten, eleven. I just want to see that you put yourself in that position. If you have, if you're a parent or you have a brother or a sister, imagine that individual having to go through that pain. We have to stop this. We have to be the voices to, to raise awareness and stop this. And what you can do to help get involved to bring awareness in your area. 
you get involved, you donate, you start asking questions, you start following policy, you start paying attention. Just stop being ignorant and not doing something about the problem. Asking your local police department and your counties what they're doing and how you can help them with resources to continue to fight the battle. For information on ways to help fight human trafficking, you can visit www.state.gov slash 20 ways you can help fight human trafficking.com. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. And while the box office hit Sound of Freedom shines a light on international child sex trafficking, within our own borders, as you've seen, the U.S. is a top destination for this horrific industry. And as Heritage Foundation Research Associate Emma Waters tells me, it's happening right beneath our noses. Emma, thanks so much for joining us. You've written about the four main factors that aggravate child trafficking. The crisis at the southern border comes in on top. Could you tell us more about what's happening there? So it's estimated that 435 unaccompanied minors come to the southern border every day. And some studies suggest that up to 60% of these boys and girls will be exploited in sex trafficking. So oftentimes in order to make it to the southern border, they work with drug cartels or traffickers. But upon reaching the United States, instead of entering a land of freedom and promise, they're instead put into some of the worst parts of American life, namely child pornography, forced labor, um, or even forced prostitution. And within the U.S., social media is used to facilitate child trafficking, and that's a much less obvious entry point. So how is that used in child trafficking? Yes, so major social media platforms like TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram have all been indicted in these sex trafficking or even uh, cases of pedophilia multiple times. And so what happens is traffickers will target typically young women on social media, start to build a friendship or romantic relationship with them. And then from there, once they've established um, a sense of trust, they will oftentimes start asking for provocative pictures or videos or to meet up in person. And it's just this gateway into major child exploitation issues with child pornography or even, again, sexual exploitation and prostitution. The worst part is, is this can take place under their parents' very roofs. So one study showed that of children ages 7 to 11, 55 percent of them were first contacted on social media by traffickers. So the ages of kidnapping are long past us, and now it's happening under our very fingertips. Now, you've mentioned pornography a couple of times already. How does it come into this? And what kinds of pushback have we seen against it? So with child pornography, this is actually one of the areas where we have a lot of hope when it comes to everyday Americans fighting back against this evil industry. So a couple of years ago, there was an article and a subsequent petition that highlighted the presence of child pornography on Pornhub, which is not only the largest pornography website, but also one of the largest websites on the, enti on the entire internet. Um, so after a series of petitions and work, um, Pornhub actually deleted 80% of their content which equals about 10 million videos that were allegedly of children in pornography. Um, so this is a massive win because then after this, um, Visa, Discover, MasterCard all canceled any sort of relationship with them. And at this point, what was once one of the largest websites in the world is about to face financial ruin because people took a stand and said no to child pornography and the exploitation inherent in that practice. Incredible, but yes, a hopeful picture that's forming there. Next, I want to look at some of the shocking statistics relating to broken homes. 
What's the research showing about children's vulnerability to being taken or used in these circumstances? So we know that children are safest when they're in a family of their mother and their biological father. But in so many cases, um, fathers aren't present in the home, which opens children up to be exploited in a number of ways. So when there's an unrelated male, say a cohabitating boyfriend living in the home, children are 11 times more likely to be exploited sexually. And if we know that child trafficking victims are oftentimes exploited by someone they know, an unrelated man in the home, a neighbor, um, or even one of their biological parents. The implications are just obvious and horrific. And specifically, when you're from a broken home, your chances of entering the foster care system shoot up exponentially. And of child trafficking victims in the United States, 86% of those child trafficking victims spent time in the foster care system at some point. And so there's a clear gateway here between children who were not in safe homes with a loving mother and father to the foster care system and then later ending up on the streets in child sexual exploitation. And I'd like to look at some possible solutions here. What kinds of policies do you think could put an end to all of this exploitation within our borders? Yes, so the first one would be to actually enforce the laws we have at the southern border. But when it comes to social media, one of the major things that we could do is to think about ways to keep children safe online. Other areas, of course, are to continue to crack down on child pornography wherever we see it. And then last but not least are policies that support the natural family of a mother and father. So reforms and supports to our foster care system, as well as as many um, resources and alleyways possible to encourage families to stay together to begin with. And all this exploitation is in a way happening beneath our noses. It's in every community potentially that you could think of. How could people out there in their everyday lives have a positive impact on this horrific industry? We know that vulnerable children who are coming from broken families, um, who have a lot of unregulated use or access to social media, um, those are children that are most at risk here. So any ways that parents and adults can get involved in mentorship programs um, through their local schools, through local community centers, actually goes a long way in targeting and protecting these kids who are also very vulnerable to sex traffickers. Thank you so much, Emma Waters, Heritage Foundation Research Associate and Visiting Fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, he was one of the greatest players in NBA history. Now, one of his most iconic game-worn jerseys is headed to auction for a hefty price. And the 40th National Night Out. It's a day for police officers across the nation to get together with the communities they serve. We'll have that story for you after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a rare piece of sports history up for sale. That's right, Steph. Wilt Chamberlain's 1972 NBA Finals jersey will be up for auction at Sotheby's at the end of this month, with the auction house expecting the bidding to reach in the neighborhood of $4 million. Chamberlain, a Hall of Famer considered to be one of the greatest players in league history, wore the jersey in Game 2 as well as the clinching Game 5 as the Lakers finally broke through with a title over New York. The championship was their sixth in franchise history but broke a long drought after being stopped in the finals eight times in the previous 13 seasons with seven of those coming against Boston. 
Now, should this jersey sell for the projected $4 million, it would fall well below the record $10.1 million paid for a Michael Jordan Finals jersey a year ago. Yet it would likely be the most ever paid for a piece of Chamberlain memorabilia, topping the $1.8 million that a jersey from his rookie season went for earlier this summer. And in college sports, the Pac-12 is considering a media deal with Apple TV, according to multiple sources. The leaders of the remaining nine universities of the Power Conference were presented with several options in a meeting Tuesday night, though no vote was taken. Terms of the proposed deal haven't been made public, but would go into effect after the 2023-24 season. The beleaguered conference has already lost flagship schools UCLA and USC last summer to the Big Ten, while Colorado recently announced they're leaving for the Big 12, with money or lack of it likely a major factor. Meanwhile, the Big 12 reportedly has interest in adding another school to ultimately give them 14 members. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, nine baseball games are on, including a Yankees-Rays matchup with Cy Young contenders Garrett Cole and Shane McClanahan on the mound. Cole leads the league in ERA, while McClanahan's 11 wins are second in the AL. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And next, the first Tuesday of every August is National Night Out. This is the day for police officers from all across the country to build relationships with local communities. NTD Sam Wang brings us more from Washington, D.C. Peace and joy at the nation's capital. It was all made possible when local police officers walked into the very crowd they protect and serve, showing their neighbors who they are behind the badge. National Night Out showed law enforcement that you have to be part of the community, you have to interact with them, and you have to be a member and listen to them and be a partner. The National Night Out is an annual event that seeks to build connections between police and neighborhoods, and that relationship is needed more so than ever, as inner city crime rates continues to climb. Just recently, the Mexican consulate in Washington, D.C. stepped in to address the concern, warning Mexican nationals that parts of the city are no longer considered safe. Violent crime in the D.C. area has surged by a staggering 36 percent compared to the same time last year, and just homicide alone is up by 15 percent. Councilmember Brooke Pinto told me that the public's trust in police is the foundation to improving safety. The more community trust and relationships people have with our police, the safer our city will be, the more likely people are to report an incidence of crime or report suspicious activity. At the event, Residents are able to take part in safety demonstrations set up by first responders, as well as block parties, live music, bounce beds, cookouts, and many more. And I see you got some pretty good food out here. So how does it feel catering to the communities? <laughs> it's cool. It's busy. So it's, it's kind of helpful. People know what they want when they come, but they don't always know what they want, but it's okay. Many have tables set up on the site. This is Dwayne Harper. He's out here showing folks a new video platform. What is, this, uh, what is this platform that you guys are trying to introduce to people? Well, this platform is called Ganjin World. It's a clean platform that has no harmful content on there, no criminal activity, and it's good for children and adults and individuals. And we encourage everyone that comes to the event to post about their experience about the event. We have a lot of vendors out here, uh, our table, some of the vendors over here, great food. Post about your experience. All seven police districts across Washington, D.C. have hosted events during the later afternoon and evening hours. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. And lastly, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember that you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.